1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Bernardo batis And in my podcast today, we had Art Carden, who's an economic professor at the Brock School of Business at the University of Sanford in Alabama. We're going to be talking today about his book, Let Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, How the Bourgeoisie Deal Enriched the World, co-author with Drady McCloskey And <clears throat> I want to say that this podcast is produced in collaboration with uh, Ranjit Dinghi, who's the uh, editor of the book's review at EHNet. EHNet is owned and operated by the Economic History Association with the support of other sponsoring organizations. You can find a link to the review of this book in EHNet. Art, right, thank you very much and welcome to New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. How, how do you uh, decide to become an economic historian?
0: Yeah, so this is, this is interesting. Um, When I went to when I first started at graduate graduate school at Washington University in St. Louis, I was interested in in political economy and public choice and public finance and things like that. And I knew Douglas North's reputation. And um, incidentally, my my then girlfriend, now wife, was taking a class at the University of Alabama. She's two years younger than I am taking a class called the Mind of the South. So we spent a lot of time every night talking on the phone about Southern history. And I, I started thinking, wow, you know, this is something where there's a lot of neat work to be done. And um, I got really, really interested then in economic history and, of course, took the courses, worked with Douglas North and John Nye at WashU, wrote my dissertation on Southern economic history. Um, kind of got sidetracked for a little while because I've, uh, I've done a lot of work on Walmart. And that ended up being that was supposed to be a one off paper. And that ended up becoming an entire research agenda. But fortunately, um, in working on the book with Deirdre, and now I finally got to teach an economic history course this past May term for the first time in, gosh, over ten years. So I, I get to return to my first love.
1: Thank you very much. That's super interesting. So how was it that this collaboration with uh, Drady came about?
0: So a lot of this is—it's uh, sort of an interesting object lesson in being in the right place at the right time and trying to put it and kind of putting yourself in certain places um yeah i met deirdre when i was in graduate school and uh she probably the, the first major interaction we had was actually the weekend before my dissertation proposal she presented the first volume of the bourgeois era trilogy at wash u and my advisor john nye asked if i would pick up asked if i'd pick her up at the airport and then take her back and the answer of course is yes do you want to to you know, spend 30 minutes in your car one way there, another way back um, with Deirdre McCloskey's Undivided Attention. And uh, so got to do that. She found out about some of the work I was working on and thought it was interesting. Uh, I remember her exclaiming that I was ambitious when I told her I'd read the entire first draft of the first bourgeois book. Uh, we continued to correspond over uh, the next several years. And then in 2012, actually, we were both in the Competitive Enterprise Institute's iPencil video series and they did the filming in Chicago and she and I had lunch together and she said that she was interested in working on kind of a shorter popularized version of the bourgeois trilogy and asked if I would be interested in being the co-author. And of course the answer to that is yes, I would absolutely be interested in and willing to do that. And it was a fantastic experience. Um, I learned a lot about obviously a lot about a lot of different things. There are a lot of ways in which with respect to our collaboration, I'm kind of the Stephen Dubner to her Stephen Levitt. If uh, if you analogize, analogize our book to to Freakonomics, but yeah, that's basically the that's basically the origin story of "Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich."
1: And um, of course, for anybody who's not aware of McCloskey's work, uh, the bourgeois tr- trilogy is a, a three part uh, series that appeared between 2006 and 2016. In which she portrays her views on economic history and much else, in about two thousand pages. So yes, I think it's commendable that you've read the three volumes cover cover to cover and have produced something that Osmere uh, mere mortals can can um, get to grips and then go to the to the main to the main course in in the relevant uh, in the relevant parts. So. <clears throat> How is it then that you decide what to pick up from this massive piece of work and try to put it into into um, more more you know general terms because there's going to be a lot of choosing and what to live in and what is going to be left out?
0: Right, so the book went through a lot of different versions. And in fact, it's actually kind of funny because like so much has been cut out and so much has been added in and things like that. There's sometimes I forget what's in the book and what isn't uh, or like what we cut out and, and things of that nature. But, yeah, we spent a lot of time trying to ask, OK, what are what are these central and essential ideas? Um, I, I had a bit of an epiphany in late 2018. I was actually teaching an Institute for Humane Studies weekend seminar at Faulkner University with my, my friend Jason Jewell. And. I realized, wait, I, like our, the perfect book, the perfect version of this would be something that students could read, could do like an Institute for Remain Studies weekend seminar and read the entire book um, enough that they can do it in all of the sessions or so, and something, for example, that could be used uh, in an undergraduate course or even with graduate students if you don't want them to have to read the entire trilogy. But yeah, there we we ended up having to make some hard choices about what to keep and what to what to toss. But we, we thought... Kind of our ideal reader is somebody who buys books in airports and who could like skim it quickly on, say, a flight from Birmingham to Chicago or read it a little bit more carefully on a flight from, say, Chicago to L.A. And that's kind of what drove what stayed in and and what ended up what ended up uh, on the cutting room floor.
1: Okay, excellent. So what was the, um, you know, in in terms of the hard choices, what was the hardest choice to, to leave out if you can remember that bit?
0: Hardest choice to leave out. Oh gosh, let's see here. Um, um well I wrote a chapter about Ayn Rand that uh, I don't think Deirdre liked as much as I did. So it's kind of hard to leave that one on the cutting room floor. Uh, I think that's, that's, uh, I- I'm smiling as I say this, because this is a, it, yeah, obviously there's some, there's some things on, on which we, we com- didn't completely see eye to eye, but of course she's the sort of senior author in the project and, and, uh, Uh, that was, that was kind of tough. Um, I had a a chapter about retail that I ended up chopping out because I, I, and then this was kind of hard to do, but I was, I wasn't sure about the sourcing on the chapter. So, and you know, the book was already, was already pretty long. So, so there's some specific case studies and some specific examples that, that sort of get left out that, um, would have been fun to talk about a lot of stuff about, different authors and, and the ways that they were writing about commerce in the 16th century and 17th century and 18th century. Um, again, a lot of that is, is either remains in Deirdre's big bourgeois trilogy or in a bunch of other sources that we consulted that we ended up having to leave out as well. But, um, yeah, that was, I wrote, who was it? Voltaire? I think he said, uh, um, uh, he apologizes for writing a really long letter. He didn't have a lot, enough time to write a short one. So we ended up having to, yeah, we we had, had to make a had to make a lot of a lot of hard choices.
1: Yes, I can I can imagine. So let's let's get into the in, into the book it, itself, which is as as we agree, trying to bring out the the soul, if you want to, of of this uh, trilogy and present it to a uh, to a wider audience. So the basic premise, as I understand it, is um, how liberty has been fundamental in the development of. Of and, and progress of um, Western societies and, and world economics in since the 16th century, correct?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Liberty and dignity are the kind of the two keywords. Why dignity and why liberty? So, liberty first, just for for the reason that every economist kind of understands: um, open and competitive markets are important because. Uh, when people have the freedom to pursue profit, they get resources into the right uses and things like that. Importantly, liberty matters a lot because um, it gives us it gives us the freedom to innovate, to look at some pattern of the way that the world is and say, you know what, I think I could do this better, and then be able to do that without having to ask anybody's permission or without having to worry about being thrown off a cliff, which was a problem in a lot of different places. And then there's also also the question of dignity. Where being you know, a shoemaker, say, or uh, in our modern context, getting a degree in accounting and being a good accountant is something that we think of as being a, a dignified thing to do. Being a merchant is not, um, not, not something that we're as suspicious of as we've been historically. Uh, you, you mentioned things that things that we left out. There's a I remember reading a, and I'm paraphrasing this from memory, but merchants in in Italy um, would write in the front of their, like in the front of their, their account books, you know, in the name of God and profit. And like they meant both. So first of all, the liberty to pursue profit. Second of all, the dignity to the dignity to have a little bit of esteem for people who had made the world a better place. One of the ways that we, um, I know Didra put it in, in, the bourgeois trilogy. And that I think is, is important is the world changed from a world where, um, Innovation was suspicious and heretical, and looked down upon. To a world in which they they built a statue of James Watt for his innovations in the steam engine.
1: Exactly, I mean there is this change in thinking about um, commerce and services in 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 general, and as as they become central to um, economic progress and economic development. Um, so. This would um, then how how would this link to the industrial revolution, as you've mentioned, James Watt?
0: Yeah, so we have this 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 wave of gadgets that sweeps across Britain, and um, part of part of it again is just is at the margin, just like small changes in people's liberty to do things, and small small changes in the degree to which we embrace. Um, if for lack of a better word, kind of a, a democratic capitalist system where uh, anybody who wants to can try something. And again, it becomes uh, uh, upsetting old patterns becomes something that is is not completely accepted and completely embraced, but at least something of which people are less suspicious. Again, I think it was, uh, gosh, Queen Elizabeth, I guess, who said that, that you know, the, the proper office of the soul is to obey. And we kind of pushed back against that a little bit. And I say kind of because obviously it was, it was extremely incomplete, and there's probably a lot, uh, a lot more that we can do. But we, we went from uh, a world that rejected bourgeois virtue to being a world that embraced it. One of the examples we do use in the book is um, two plays, one, The Shoemaker's Holiday, and the other, The London Merchant. And The London Merchant is, is very much a celebration of commerce and a celebration of business and a celebration of, of honest dealing and innovating and things like that. And The Shoemaker's Holiday, which had come out about 100 years before in the late 16th century, um, was really kind of poking fun at the, the idea that a shoemaker – could be noble, or the idea that making shoes could be dignified.
1: Right. Let's briefly mention something that uh, Joel Moore, Moore, um raises in his, in his review, and that has to do with the Enlightenment, and more specifically with uh, how something that goes hand-in-hand hand with liberty is this a market for ideas, this application of ideas in 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 everyday life, and and also key to to progress, um, and and that uh, the the comment that is made is that probably this this importance of of how to make these uh, ideas applied um, is somewhat left out, giving too much uh, importance. To, to liberty. Um, so, how, how would you um, respond to that? Or how would you feel about that?
0: Yeah. So, so looking at the at the review, um, so he points out that he says that we don't really, or says that the Enlightenment plays no role in their account, despite its commitment to ideas. Um, if we didn't communicate that clearly, that's on us. Uh, we we the last chapter is about Adam Smith, and we're trying at least to to convey the notion that, in particular, the Scottish Enlightenment. Was really really important. Um, fortunately, uh, my my hope is my hope is that there'll be a second edition someday. So this is something that I would want to, I would want us to clarify because I know there's a lot of there's a lot of complementarity between the story that uh, that we're telling or the story that Deirdre's telling and the story that uh, Joel Moakir is telling about the Industrial Enlightenment, uh, in particular in his book uh, his book The Culture of Culture of Growth.
1: Right, thank you for clarifying that uh which is very very helpful and um then let's go back and and continue with the with the book how so the premise is is, is you know all of these changes are happening in the sixteenth seventeenth centuries are are very important. we have the industrial revolution, but then how does this portray into the twentieth and twenty first centuries
0: yeah so how how do we apply this to the twentieth and twenty first century um I think we, we look at, and so I teach at a, at a, at a Baptist university that's it's very, very, very serious about its faith tradition. Um, so I'll kind of put it in, in that context. So it's, it's a place that you know, our students are very, very good at wanting to help people, like very, very good at wanting to help people. Um, it's not really clear that they're as good at, at actually helping people as they would like to be. And That's just true of any human being. Um, what I, what I where I think the application could be in the early twenty first century is recentering our idea of what it means to live a good and benevolent life. Um. You know, A lot of churches for example, will they'll have like special commissioning services for say someone so people who want to become missionaries so they'll have like a special service recognize that people who want to become missionaries or people going into the military sometimes some churches will do this. I've long said that I think it'd be fantastic if they if they held a held a, a similar little recognition ceremony for people who took the cPA exam you know something like that some people who 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 went into Innovative fields or who, or who, again, just decided to become a good accountant working for Deloitte or, or, uh, E&Y or another major firm. Um, recognizing, I think that say Jeff Bezos and Sergey Brin and Larry Page have probably done more to advance the cause of education, say, than, uh, a lot of people who have deliberately set out to advance the cause of education and to improve education and things like that. So, uh, in fact, actually in one of Mokir's articles, uh, he refers to Google as the world's best research assistant. And I think about this every time I try to do something, I can, I can look up enormous amounts of stuff and find enormous amounts of information that a few decades ago, I would have had to go to a library to dig up. Um, uh, That's something that I would want more people to appreciate that, um, you can make the world a better place without necessarily directly and specifically intending to, and, um, to note that zero, excuse me, (laughs) positive sum transactions and innovation are in fact virtuous. Right. Yes.
1: That, that's, that's interesting. And, um, I'm sure that not everybody would, um, I agree with that. I'm I'm not challenging it. I'm I'm just saying that 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 it can be it can be um, you know. Well, we have difference of opinion. I'm saying that I'm having one with you, but um, but then how would this um, book, do you think, will be received by um, you know? You you mentioned thinking of of selling it in. Airport. How do you think, or how would you like it to be received by, say, your your um somebody working in a corporation, in a corporation, some somebody working in in industry. Mm
0: -hmm. I think it would be. I would like for somebody working in industry, so somebody like who buys it and reads it on a flight from Chicago to LA for a conference or something like that. Yeah, they recognize that that in fact, like what they're doing. Is in a lot of ways the fountain of prosperity that um, we got we got rich. We created this world in which in which what we refer to as poverty in the United States is fantastic wealth in historical perspective. That this happened not because of redistribution. It happened not because uh, we started giving more or anything like that. It happened rather because we embraced an idea that say like Calvin Coolidge. Uh, expressed during his administration that say the business of America is business and further um, embraced innovation and creative destruction by noting that the creative part tends to outweigh the destruction part when we're considering the the long run history of innovation.
1: Right. This would be a very Schumpeterian view of of innovation and economic growth, no?
0: Yeah. So it's I would like to. I would like to think that, yeah. So we should. You know, obviously, um, when Amazon comes along, you know, maybe small local booksellers get knocked out of the market. Though that's that's ambiguous. Or when Walmart comes along, um, companies that compete directly with Walmart are probably not going to be long for this world. Um, we should note and acknowledge the fact that you know, someone who puts their puts their entire life into a mom-and-pop shop that gets, quote-unquote, run out of business by Walmart, I mean, they've experienced a real and genuine loss, and we should acknowledge that and try to help them. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's also worth noting and worth embracing that, uh, again, the creative part of Walmart's entry or the creative part of Amazon's innovations – far, far, far outweighs the destruction part insofar as they contribute an enormous amount to general human well-being.
1: Right. <clears throat> so what would be then your your final thoughts on, on the book in, in terms of, you know, how is this second edition looking like? What is the yeah, feedback you're getting from other people on the book?
0: Yeah, so the so the second edition, and this is just something I hope happens uh, at some point. We haven't we haven't formally talked about it. the paperback is coming out, I think, in, in November. Um, but yeah, my 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 idea for or goal for a second edition would be just you know collect things like um, you know, like the points that Joel Mokir raises in his review, where either we're we're I, I think that there's a lot more agreement between between what we're claiming or what we're saying and what he's stating in his review and bringing that out a little bit more, highlighting the complementarities better, Um, excuse me, adding new evidence as it's come up because uh, that's one of the things I've noticed is just how rapidly new information emerges and how rapidly new scholarship comes along. Um, We've gotten a lot of feedback. And uh, in fact, actually, I think we say in the acknowledgements, like email me if you have Questions, comments, corrections, etc. And were we to do a second edition, I would like to you know, basically take take what we've heard, evaluate it carefully, and then amend the text accordingly.
1: Thank you, thank you for that, Kurt. Um, so, what is your well? While that is on the on the back burner, or rather on the back burner, waiting to see if it if it happens, um, what is your next big uh, project? Where are you working on these days?
0: Yeah, so next big project, I have a handful of things. Um, a couple of co-authors and I have a, a paper about retail innovation, uh, specifically the careers of Saul Price, who launched, well, did a lot of things, but launched the Warehouse Club Revolution, ultimately, and Sam Walton. That's going to be an essays in economic and business history. Um, I'm doing a lot of work right now about the South African economist, William Harold Hutt. Um kind of digging into his ideas about institutional change, um, realizing that there's a goldmine there. There's a lot of stuff that Hutt said and that Hutt was was doing first in thinking about the transition of Great Britain out of World War II, and then second, thinking about transitions in post-colonial Africa that apply a lot of important ideas we see, for example, in the public choice tradition. Um, I have in the last several years done a lot of work on – Uh, James Buchanan, winner of the 1986 Nobel Prize of a paper forthcoming in Business Ethics Quarterly on Buchanan's ideas about the work ethic and what that means for uh, what that means for for economic growth and again, and potentially the possibility of increasing returns. And um, then I have a, a handful of articles right now that I'm working on for the Elgar Encyclopedia of Public Choice on slavery. Capitalism, socialism, apartheid, the transitional gains trap, and coercion—that should be available. Well, they're due on September first, so they'll they'll definitely be available on the Social Science Research Network in draft form at least by then.
1: Super, that's uh, very interesting. So, where uh, of of the multiple things that you've uh, mentioned, how are you getting the archive material to talk about our? Um, in South Africa,
0: yeah. So, so a lot of what we're what we're getting there is from the Hut Papers specifically. So, my co-author Philip W. Magnus has made a couple of visits to the Hut Papers at the Hoover Institution. So, we have a lot of things directly from his papers. Um, something I'm discovering is the amount of really interesting archival material out there that is available online. Um, obviously, most libraries have online collections and, and things, but we were able to find, and this is actually a, a paper. Uh, our new paper that is in the Independent Review, we discuss a, an exchange between Hutt and a, an African religious leader named Z.K. Matthews, who uh, actually spoke and gave a, an important lecture at the University of Cape Town in the early 1960s. And they're corresponding about what Hutt calls the need for ironclad constitutional protections of property rights in a world of post-colonial transition. So um, this, again, is, is Google serving as the world's best research assistant. We're able to find a lot of archival material out there that we may not actually even have to travel to visit an archive in order to get. And, again, if, if, uh, if you're familiar, if anybody listening is familiar with Phil Magnus's work, he's uh, – I don't know that the guy sleeps. And he um, has an incredible command of, of archival resources out there. My hope is to get out to Stanford at some point maybe in the fall. And uh, dig around in the hot papers a little bit. We have a, another potential collaborator who's an expert on South Africa who's gonna take an excursion to the University of Cape Town for us while he's in, in South Africa in October. And uh, we'll just try to scrape together whatever we can get.
1: Super. That's super interesting. Thank you very much, Art. Thank you very t- uh, for being with us at the New Books Network and hope to have you again soon with a new book project.